I was in Italy when my Uncle Richard died, and no one was more surprised than I when I heard from his solicitor that he had left me a house in Norfolk and the sum of £300 a year. I hadn't seen my uncle since I was about nine years old, and could only vaguely remember him as a very young-looking man with a pale face and intensely black eyes. Our last meeting had been at my father's house in Kent, and I recalled that I had been very frightened of him. There was something nasty about him, and he had an unpleasant way of fondling me on every possible occasion. I think my father quarrelled with him very soon after this visit, for I never saw him again, nor was his name mentioned. It was two months before I returned to England, and then I went at once to the chambers of my late uncle's solicitor in Gray's Inn. Mr. Priestley, of Priestley, Priestley and Morton, turned out to be quite a charming little man, but he wasn't at all enthusiastic about the legacy. "'We attended to your uncle's business affairs,' he said. But if you will excuse me for saying so, he was not a pleasant man. I only saw him about five times in twenty-odd years, and there was always something uncanny about him. The most remarkable thing was the way he retained his youthful appearance. At least I should say he looked about twenty-five years old when I last saw him alive. Although in death he was old and withered. How did he die? I asked. Ah, that is a most shocking story. For years he had lived the life of a recluse in a dismal house on Brenton Marsh, about five miles from King's Lynn. He kept no servants, doing all his own shopping, and having a half-witted old woman in to tidy up about twice a week. The woman died about six months before your uncle, and he never replaced her. Just after two months ago I wanted your uncle's signature to a document, and sent one of my clerks down to Brenton to obtain it. The man knocked at the door of the house, but could get no reply. All the windows were shuttered, and the place seemed deserted. Inquiries in the village revealed that Mr. Slade had not been seen about for some weeks. My clerk, a very sensible fellow, got hold of the local policeman, and together they went up to the place and forced an entrance. The house was in a filthy state, but there was no sign of your uncle in any of the ground-floor rooms or the bedrooms. At last they discovered him, or what had been him, in a little attic under the roof. He had evidently been dead for over a week, and he had died by his own hand. Razor was at his side, and his throat was slashed across. My clerk told me that the most horrible part of the ghastly business was a swarm of horrid flies that was clinging to the wound. They wired for me at once, and I went down without delay. It was necessary for me to inspect the body, and I can tell you I got a shock. As I've already said, the last time I had seen your uncle alive, he had the appearance of a young man. In death, he was old and wizened. In fact, I was only able to recognize him by his clothes, and his watch, and his ring. Corruption had made the remains nauseating, and those loathsome flies were everywhere. As fast as we brushed them off his throat, they returned again. The body was coffined that same night, and even then they swarmed on the top of the casket. An inquest had to be held, of course, and it was three days before we could bury him. I was the only mourner, and I shall never forget that funeral. The coffin was taken down to the church on a hand bier, and all the way those flies buzzed about it. And then, in the middle of the service, the clergyman fainted. When he recovered, all he would say was, Bury it! Bury it! And so the service was never completed. It was a most ghastly business from beginning to end. 
I was naturally shocked to hear such a horrible story, and had some thought of renouncing the legacy. But I am a poor man, and a house in Norfolk, together with three hundred pounds a year, was a small fortune to me. That afternoon I journeyed down to King's Lynn, and put up at a small hotel there. Next morning, accompanied by a house decorator, I went out to Brenton to inspect my property. It turned out to be a rambling old house, standing alone in the marsh about a mile from the village. The garden must have been neglected for more than half a century, and a large pond, dark and weed-grown, was at the back. The inside of the building was in an awful state. Filth was everywhere. The furniture was old and worn, and there were no coverings on the floor. Together we inspected the rooms, the decorator making his estimates. At last we climbed up to the attic. It was a tiny place under the roof, and in the centre of the floor was what appeared to be a dark stain. Even as we looked at it, the stain moved, and we saw that it was a swarm of beastly black flies. They made us both feel sick, and I instructed the man to have the door of the room securely fastened up. As we passed through the garden gate on our way back to the village, I turned to look at the house again. I glanced up at the attic window, and there, pressed against the glass, was a white face. It was gone almost immediately, and I tried to convince myself that it had only been the reflection of a passing cloud. Six weeks later, I moved into the house on the marsh. My man, Jenkins, and a maidservant we had engaged in London went down with me. The decorator had made a very good job of the place, and the room seemed almost homely and cheerful. And yet I didn't like the house. My feelings were evidently shared by Jenkins, for when he was serving dinner he said, I don't like this place, sir. There's something creepy about it, and that pond is awful. Nonsense, I exclaimed. You haven't been here long enough to form any opinion. I spent the evening in the library, looking through my uncle's books. He certainly had a queer taste in literature. Nearly all the volumes were about magic, witchcraft, and occultism, and many of them must have been very rare. In one corner of the room was an old desk, and I found the drawers stuffed with letters, circulars, and miscellaneous papers. At the back of a pigeonhole was a small calf-bound volume, which seemed to be my late relative's diary. It was past eleven o'clock when I discovered it, so I deferred an inspection of its contents until another day. As far as I was concerned, the first night passed quietly enough. I slept well, although I did have one queer dream. It seemed that three young men came into my bedroom and stood over me. Their faces were very white, and each one had a ghastly wound in his breast. In the morning there seemed to be a certain amount of tension in the atmosphere. After breakfast the maid came in to me and asked permission to leave at once. "'I can't stand this place, sir,' she cried. "'There is a tall man with a white face who peeps in at the windows.' Nothing would convince her of the folly of such a statement, and by midday she had left the house. Jenkins, too, seemed unnerved, but he had been with me for ten years, and I could trust him not to leave. In the afternoon I walked down to the village and called on the vicar. He was a quiet, studious type of man, an ex-fellow of St. Chad's, from which college he held the living. I asked him point-blank what had caused him to faint at my uncle's funeral. 
I'll tell you, Mr. Slade, he replied, although I have never repeated this story to a living soul. I did not know your uncle, but he was a man with a most unsavory reputation. All the villagers feared and hated him, although I have never been able to discover the reason for their antipathy. But as I stood by the graveside conducting the funeral service over his body, I noticed that hundreds of vile flies were clinging to the coffin. Into my mind came that verse from the eighth chapter of Exodus, I will send swarms of flies upon thee. Then, as I looked, it seemed that the insects formed themselves into the shape of a heart, and then the heart became red and bleeding. I saw gouts of blood drip from it, and uh, I must have fainted. There was something unholy about your uncle, Mr. Slade, and no power on earth could induce me to finish the committal service. He was buried, but not with the full rites of the church. I thought over the parson's words as I crossed the marsh, and the more I thought of them, the less I liked them. Jenkins was waiting for me at the gate, and I could see from his face that something had happened. For God's sake, sir, he blurted out, let's get away from this place. The house is full of flies, there's a ghost in the library, and there's dead men in that pond. With some difficulty, I got a coherent story from him. It seems that after I had left the house, Jenkins strolled out into the garden. He wandered down to the pond, and was gazing at the black water when he saw, or fancied he saw, three white faces looking up at him from the depths. For a moment he stood fascinated with horror, and then he fled back to the house. Then, as he was passing the library window, he swore that another white face looked out at him. For some time he dared not go in, and when he did overcome his fear he found the whole place swarming with flies. I did my best to calm his fears, and we went inside together. It was just as he had said. The flies were everywhere. Black, hideous things of a species unknown to me. Jenkins managed to dish up some sort of a dinner, and I made him sit at the table with me. He had risen to go over to the sideboard for the wine, and I was glancing at a newspaper when he suddenly screamed. I looked up at once, and there, seated in the chair opposite, the chair just vacated by Jenkins, was my uncle Richard. He was dressed entirely in black. His face was deathly white, but his mouth was smeared with fresh red blood, and buzzing around his head were hundreds of those wretched flies. A more loathsome and terrifying sight I have never beheld. For a few moments I gazed spellbound at the apparition, and then it slowly faded away. Neither Jenkins nor I could finish our meal. We got out of that awful room as quickly as possible, and went into the library. There we made ourselves as comfortable as the circumstances permitted, determining to spend the night in the room and to leave the house first thing in the morning. And then I remembered that little calf-bound volume and thinking it might throw some light on the ghastly events, I fetched it from the desk. It wasn't exactly a diary, it was something far worse. The entries were few, and were as follows. March 15th, 1907. Today is my thirtieth birthday, and if I am to test the theories of the ancients, I must soon make the experiment. 
I cannot bear the thought of this body of mine growing old with the years. Like the ancient philosophers, I sought many years to discover the secret of eternal youth. And now success has crowned my efforts. Immortality is within my reach. Many of the occultists of the Middle Ages maintained that age could be conquered by those who had the courage to tear the heart from a living youth and consume it whilst uttering certain mystic words. For five years I hunted the libraries of Europe for records of such an experiment, and last December I was fortunate enough to discover a fourteenth-century manuscript in a tiny library at Randen in Austria. The volume was the work of one Leo of Salzburg, and he claimed to have kept his youth for over a hundred years by repeating the experiment ten times. He recorded in detail the ritual to be observed, but stated that the actual formula to be uttered would be hidden in his coffin. On inquiring, I found that this Leo had died at Rondon in 1454 and was buried in the ruined Abbey of Sapiel in the hills above the town. The grave was easy to discover. It was a stone vault set in a side chapel of the Abbey Church. I determined to open it that very night. There was no danger of interruption, for the country people think the ruin is haunted and will not go near it after dusk. I secured the necessary tools and a lantern, and climbed up to the abbey about eight o'clock. The cover of the vault was difficult to raise, and I doubt if I should have managed it had it not been for a young man who appeared suddenly from nowhere, and assisted me to lift the stone. I only caught a glimpse of his face, for when I turned to thank him, he had gone. I was a little perturbed about this, as I did not want any of the villagers to know of my activities. A flight of steps led down into the vault, and at the foot of them was the coffin standing on a stone slab. It was of lead, and I had no difficulty in removing the lid. As I bent over the corpse, a swarm of flies suddenly rose from it, so many of them that they seemed to fill the small chamber. How flies can have lived for centuries in a sealed coffin I cannot understand. The body seemed to be well preserved. It was wrapped in a black robe, and a square of linen covered the face. I removed this, and was horrified to find that the countenance beneath was that of the young man who had assisted me to raise the cover of the vault. My first inclination was to flee from the place, but remembering that I must obtain possession of the formula at all costs, I mastered my fear. Under the head I found a small roll of vellum, and soon ascertained that this was the document I was in search of. As I was fitting the coffin lid on again, the flies came down and crept in through the edges. There was something ghastly about those flies living with the dead, and I was glad to get into the fresh air. It was easy to replace the stone. I left my implements under a buttress of the church, and with the scroll safely in my pocket, returned to Rondon. I was possessed of the secret of eternal youth. June 30th, 1907 Last night a young tramp called at the house to ask for food. I knew at once that he was the very person for my first experiment, and invited him to stay the night. A mild opiate in his beer ensured that he would sleep soundly, but I was certain that he was unconscious. I tied him firmly to the bed and gagged him. An hour or so later he awakened, and I was able to begin the ritual. After the solemn chant I braced my nerves, cut open his breast, tore out his living heart, 
and ate it. It was not unpleasant, and when I had spoken the mystic words, I realized that new life was flowing through my veins. Fortunately, I had had the forethought to put the young man in the attic, for he bled profusely. The body I have disposed of by placing it in a weighted sack and sinking it in the pond at the back of the house. One thing disturbs me. I have just been up to the attic to attempt to clean up the mess and have found swarms of flies, similar in appearance to those that were in the coffin of Leo of Salzburg, feeding upon the blood. June 21st, 1912 Five years have passed since my first experiment, and last night I was able to repeat my success. Yesterday in Lynn I fell in with a young foreign sailor and invited him over to the house. He was friendless and alone and came willingly enough. After drugging his beer, I put him to sleep in the attic. Everything happened in the same manner as in my first attempt. He also is now at the bottom of the pond where he will find company awaiting him. But those awful flies are here again, gorging themselves on the blood. June 23rd, 1917 Again a victim has been found. This time I had to go to London before I could find a suitable subject for my experiment. I came across him in the East End, an unemployed youth who was glad to accept my offer of work. He did not take beer, but I was able to administer the drug in a cup of tea. In some manner he twisted the gag from his mouth and screamed loudly when I was cutting him. I hope no one was crossing the marsh at the time. His body has joined those in the pond. And flies, thousands of them, are clearing up the blood on the floor. My experiments have certainly proved successful. Today I am just the same in appearance and vitality as I was fifteen years ago. September 2nd, 1922 I am in despair. The ritual must be repeated every five years if I am to retain my youth, and for the past three months I have sought a victim without success. The flies are all over the house. I have a horrible feeling that they will do me some hurt if I cannot supply them with the blood they require. March 20th, 1923 Flies! Flies! Flies everywhere! sending me mad. Still I am unable to find a suitable person. Youth is slipping from me. I am growing old. I dare not face death, and yet I must die if I cannot perform the ritual. May 1st, 1923. They buzz all around me. I must satisfy them before long. Only human blood will do. I have tried them with the blood of a dog, but it is no use. Only human blood. Thus ended the terrible record of black and unnatural crime. How we got through that night, I do not know. There we sat, huddled together, waiting for the dawn. At last it came, and on opening the library door, we found the whole house to be full of those... Foul flies. Jenkins packed our few personal effects and removed the bags to the garden. 
Then we spread straw, soaked in paraffin, all the ground-floor rooms, and set light to it. Within a short time, the old house was a blazing inferno, and in that holocaust perished, I hope, all the evil things that sheltered under its roof. Last week, the pond was drained, and in the mud at the bottom were found the bones of three young men. I have had them decently buried in the churchyard, and pray that I have destroyed forever all memory of the filthy satanic rites that made a haunted place of the house on the marsh. Today's story was The House on the Marsh by Frederick Carls. It was read by Jasper Lestrange. If you enjoy the show, why not become a patron on Patreon and gain access to exclusive content? It's the surest way to help me keep creating. You can also buy me a coffee, like, subscribe, comment, share, follow on social media, and read the description for more information about the show and how you can engage with it. Until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>